How do plants continue to thrive? Find out on this episode of Boiling Point. Welcome back to Boiling Point, your weekly science radio show on Eastside 89.7 FM. You're joined by your co-hosts, myself, Sammy, and Ina. Hello. Today, we'll sit down with Sarah McInnes, a PhD candidate studying fire ecology at UNSW Sydney. Welcome, Sarah. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me. So fire ecologist as a title. So cool. Um, what does that mean to you exactly? Like, what does your day-to-day look like? Yeah, um, no, it is a cool title. That's why I use it. Um, You definitely love it. Uh, But for me, what it means is I am looking at ecosystems and how they relate to fire. Uh, Because fire is such a common occurrence in Australia uh, that our ecosystems have actually learned to be, I guess, connected with it and part of it. So for me, it's trying to understand how fire and ecosystems work together to create certain outcomes, really. Right. And so you said you're saying that it's a positive thing for us to have fire? Yeah. So fire, it's kind of hard to picture considering when we see fire on the news, it's a lot of negative things. And I'm not diminishing those at all. Fire can have some pretty devastating consequences. But Australia actually has a super long history with fire as it started separating from Gondwana. Australia got hotter and drier, which if you've ever made a fire, those are kind of the perfect conditions. So Australia naturally is on fire quite a lot. And because this has happened over millions of years, a lot of our native species have actually learned to work with fire. So I study specifically plants and a lot of our native plants can't exactly get up and run, uh, last I checked anyways. So they've had to create ways to be able to cope with fire. And so a lot of them actually rely on fire to survive even. So they've they've co-evolved sort of to sit alongside fire and continue to continue to survive. What are some of the ways that they've they've done this? Is it like they've developed little fire protective coatings or what is it that they're doing? Yeah, so there's a huge variety in responses. Probably two of the main ones are re-sprouting and something known as obligate seeding. I'll talk about re-sprouting first, um, but you may have seen, if you ever walked somewhere maybe a year or so after a fire, uh, if you look at the eucalypts, you might see leaves just growing straight off the charred trunks. And it's really bizarre because you've got this dead looking thing and then this flush of greenery all over it. And that is what's known as re-sprouting. So under the bark, you have these little, I guess, pockets of energy uh, that these trees are storing. So when the fire passes, the tree, for all extensive purposes, kind of dies. These parts under the bark start growing and the tree can really quickly bounce back from the fire. So so if the, if the tree is dead, how is it that it knows to grow again? Is there like, um, is it heat activated is what what is the trigger i guess that 
because normally when I think of something as dead, it's it's dead, dead. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I guess maybe it's not dead, dead, since it can bounce back. In terms of what is triggering it, I imagine it would be the fire itself, really. That's not an area I look into too much. I actually focus more on the obligate cedars, uh, but obviously it's happening straight after fire, so we can only presume this is a fire activated phenomenon and that's really common in plants that they are triggered by fire in some capacity right and is this this is unique to australian plants or is this seen in other parts of the world as well so maybe certain adaptations are unique to australian plants but fire shaping ecosystems is not unique to australia itself because lots of places are on fire so if you think um, about different like savannas and places like california that recently was on fire like they have plants and i don't know exactly what their plants do i think plants are just weird in general but their plants have ways that they might deal with fire Right. Okay. And do you see any difference in how plants deal with fire, whether they are native or like introduced? Do you see like any evolution and adaptation to fire in introduced species? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, definitely, you could see some differences. I I know depending on the type of fire, sometimes invasive or like introduced species can really take advantage of that fire so maybe like introduce grasses so to speak that can establish really quickly as the fire has cleared all of the native vegetation these introduced uh grasses that grow really fast say sweet we've got a foothold it's empty there's no competition and heaps of resources so they can establish and native plants may struggle to get a foothold after Mm. that oh wow so is that something that we're seeing in australia at all or is this sort of more in other areas for the moment? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I imagine it would be anywhere there are introduced species, really. But I know as climate change is making our fires hotter and more frequent, and that's another thing, fires aren't all the same, um, but as climate change is changing kind of the fires we experience, those really quickly establishing grasses are becoming more predominant because plants can't regrow fast enough before the next fire comes and they can't replenish their... I guess, their energy reserves. So to go back to those eucalypts, they can't re-sprout again because they don't have those energy reserves stored up again, if that makes sense. And so you also mentioned another type of um, regrowth after fire, this obligate seeding. Yeah, obligate seeding. So this is my more my study area and it's a really interesting phenomenon so this actually all comes down to seeds which I know aren't super glamorous but actually super interesting because they just do really bizarre stuff so what actually happens is when the fire passes over the plant itself dies and I don't mean dies and comes back to life like it die dies it is completely dead but the seeds that it has produced over its life are stored either in the canopy. So if you think about banksias and their cones or in the soil, which is the ones I tend to look at, and these seeds stored in the soil, they're just lying there um, in a state known as dormancy. And this essentially means they're asleep. They're not going to grow. Any gardeners out there, probably no dormancy, probably kind of hate it uh, (laughs) because it's a really frustrating thing because you have to break dormancy for something to grow. But for these seeds, the fire itself breaks their dormancy so what happens is when the fire passes over the adult plant has been killed but all these seeds in the soil actually start to grow after the fire they use the heat or the smoke of the fire to break their dormancy and start growing which is pretty amazing right and so you said this these seeds could be either in the ground or in the canopy is 
there like what is there a difference between those two which one um would be more successful or which one might activate via fire versus smoke is there any sort of trends that we see between those two yeah so i don't think one is necessarily better than the other it would depend on the kind of fire that the ecosystem experiences maybe for things in the canopy uh they might be and this is just speculation but they might be at a disadvantage where there's higher frequency fires because maybe the adult plant can't grow fast enough grow these big cones before the next fire passes whereas a smaller plant might be able to produce seeds a bit quicker it really depends on the kind of fire and also the species itself Um, but in terms of differences so in the canopy stored uh, seeds you might have certain mechanisms around the fruit or the seed itself that helps it survive the heat of the fire so in banksia cones you actually have little valves at um in the cones and they protect the seed because they stop a lot of the heat from the surrounding fire penetrating in to the seed and killing it uh for seeds in the soil though they've got two main ways that they respond to the fire so some of them actually respond to smoke and start germinating. So you may have seen a few years back, uh, there was this flush of pink flannel flowers everywhere in the Blue, Mount- uh, in the Blue Mountains, especially around Naranek. And what had happened is the conditions from uh, the Black Summer bushfires, obviously enormous fires created a lot of smoke, but all these pink flannel flower seeds that have been in the soil for who knows how long the smoke broke their dormancy and they all just germinated all over the place and you had these meadows of pink flannel flowers. But then you look at other seeds and they use the heat itself to break dormancy. So obviously fires are quite hot. I don't think that's news to anyone. But in the soil, they can be as hot as 150 degrees and seeds are able to survive these temperatures and actually use it to their advantage and start growing, which is pretty bizarre because that degree of tolerance to heat we don't tend to see in a lot of organisms right and so this uh, event where there's these flannel flowers were uh finally sprouting you said they you don't know how long they've been there for how long does a typical dormancy period last for most plants that we would see here in australia that is an excellent question uh it can be months It can be years. It can be decades. I think the longest I've seen tend to be on the more uh, decade scale. Um, But sometimes they might only be in the soil for maybe five years before a a fire passes through and they use that opportunity to start growing. So it's a combination of how long can they survive being dormant in the soil and when does the fire actually occur. Right. And so is there... I'm I'm thinking from like local gardener perspective, right? Is it are you saying that there are certain plants that are only going to grow in situations where the soil reaches that temperature? Yeah, absolutely. So okay. a lot of our uh, acacias, so our wattles, actually do this. So they need temperatures around 80 degrees to start growing. So you're not going to go outside in summer and the soil is going to be 80 degrees. If it is, I would be concerned. Um, <laughs> But these temperatures, they're only reached by fire. So these sorts of species really need fire to start growing. So if I, if I wanted to grow an acacia plant, would it, what, 
how do you heat it up then to to grow these plants if I wanted to have one in my in my yard? Yeah, um, it's actually super simple. Uh, you got an oven, chuck them in the oven for ten minutes at like eighty degrees. That oh. tends to be a pretty safe starting point. Ten minutes, eighty degrees, you'll get germination for a lot of things. Um, otherwise, a method that a lot of seed supplier use, a seed suppliers use, is using either warm water or just boiled water and soaking the seeds for like 10 minutes or something as well um, to break its dormancy. It sounds like a cooking lesson. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Soak them for 10 minutes. (laughs) A lot of what I do is just cooking seeds, chucking them in ovens and seeing if they grow. Uh, Yeah, that sounds so weird because I think like growing up in in New York, we have lots of like pumpkins and we would around October time, we would get lots of pumpkins and people would make little pumpkin seed like to eat and that's how you would cook it you'd put it in the oven and then it's now like edible yeah whereas in this case it's not growable until you put it in the oven that's really fascinating yeah and you mentioned that you you do this daily (laughs) like sort of this is like your your regular routine um, what do you are, are you doing this in order to see what the optimal temperature is? What is what does the what are you doing when you are putting these seeds into the ovens? Yeah, so it's a combination of things. Sometimes it is just to see what that optimal dormancy breaking temperature is, um, and then we can use that in other applications. But one of the other reasons is because we see a lot of variation in these temperatures. I mentioned some acacias need like eighty degrees. Other wattles need 120 degrees, but some species only need 40 degrees. So we have this kind of overlap between temperatures that are reached in summer and temperatures that are only reached during fires. Um, So it goes from about 40 to 120 degrees, but then it varies also within species. So say you've got uh, two kinds of wattle of the same species, they might be in different populations, maybe one's in an area that experiences hotter fires compared to something else their temperature that they break dormancy can change as well. So we've got this enormous amount of variation. So a lot of what I do is actually trying to figure out, okay, but why does that temperature vary? So we know these seeds are responding to these really hot temperatures and we know that they vary both between and within the species. We just don't know why. So a lot of what I do is trying to figure out that really fundamental mechanism. Right. And have you found anything thus far that's sort of uh, one potential difference that could be changing yeah so one thing that we found uh which we published about last year uh is looking at the seed oils so what this involved is i essentially spent hours and hours sitting and cutting up seeds into their different sections (laughs) and then extracting the oils to see if the melting point of the oil in that particular part of the seed actually related to the temperature that the seed was breaking its dormancy. So I was looking at mostly oils in the seed coat, and that's exactly what you'd expect. It's just like the thing that surrounds the seed, like a little jumper. Um, And we were seeing whether those melting points were corresponding with the temperature that were breaking dormancy, and we found that it actually did which is pretty exciting. Um, So currently we're looking to expand that to see if it holds as we look at more species. Um, I presented it at a conference last year to a bunch of other seed biologists and they were keen to try it out on their species. Um, So hopefully that holds up, but that's an interesting avenue that we've been exploring. Do you also know if like 
uh, there is a genetic correlation to how like the temperature um, maybe different populations that are differently exposed to fire um, has something to do with like how like at which, which temperatures they are sprouting yeah so that's actually something else that I'm currently looking at at the moment as we're kind of wrapping up this uh, seed oil stuff uh, looking at whether these seeds are expressing certain genes to help them tolerate the extreme heat of these bushfires. Uh, so that involves just extracting RNA, not DNA, RNA, and seeing what genes are present after these seeds are subjected to this 10-minute kind of heat shock of like 80 degrees or something. Now, I work old, I've only worked with animals. I don't really do a lot of things with plants. So I like when I think of taking DNA or RNA, I'm thinking like tissues, blood, hair, those kinds of things. How do you get the RNA from a seed? So thankfully, it's a lot easier than animals. I don't have to go like chase something down and then wrangle it. Uh, seeds can't run away from me. So that <laughs> not works yet, really at well. not yet anyways. <laughs> um, so that works really well. Uh, essentially, just have the seeds that I've either bought commercially or collected myself, uh, grind them up. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's just, that's all it is. It's just ground up seeds. And then you take that and put it, I'm assuming, into some kind of solution that would yeah. help to, I don't know, denature certain proteins that you don't want? Yeah. So we grind the seed and it's all under liquid nitrogen. So negative 80 degrees. And the reason we do that is just to keep all the RNA intact, because as soon as we start grinding it, RNA is really, really unstable. It's going to break down. That's not what we want. Uh, so we grind it up under liquid nitrogen to keep it nice and cold and stable. Um, and then, yeah, we essentially pop a bunch of solutions in it. So one of the things we do is something to disrupt all the cells, and that's to let all the RNA out, essentially. Um, and then a lot of it after that is kind of purifying the RNA and trying to remove all the other stuff that we don't want because there's a lot of stuff in cells yeah, and we don't want that stuff. We just want that RNA. Right, right. And so, this is sort of the the next coming thing for you, yeah. right? Um, I want to go back a little bit to something you mentioned a little bit earlier. You said that the the fires themselves are changing with climate change, obviously. But is there what? aspects of the fire are you finding that's changing is it uh, you mentioned frequency earlier is it also some are getting hotter is that also a possibility yeah so i guess i'll, I'll go back a step even further so when we talk about fires in fire ecology we don't tend to just talk about fire we talk about a fire regime so i mentioned before that there's a misconception that Australian, like all plants don't like fire or things like that. But there's also another misconception that plants actually just love fire and need it to survive and are fine after fire in general, which is closer to the truth, but it's still not quite there because plants themselves, they're not adapted to fire. They're adapted to fire regimes. And what that means is they're adapted to a specific kind of fire. Uh, so when we talk about fire regime, we can describe it using a bunch of different terms, but the ones that we tend to talk about, which are the most common, uh, is how frequent the fire is, how hot the fire is or how intense, how severe the fire is. So is it burning just that lower kind of ground cover and shrub layer or is it going right up to your canopy and scorching the whole tree? Um, and we also talk about season of the fire. So seasonality is the word for it and it's something that's not explored 
as much, but has recently been coming into kind of fire ecology circles as we've realized it's actually pretty important as well. So plants are adapted to those unique combinations of fire rather than fire itself. Um, and I've forgotten the original question as I've gone into that crash course. No, actually, th- this actually brings up another point. So you mentioned seasonality, right? Mm. I'm I'm picturing like in terms of the uh, the type of the, the time of the seed itself. So like I, I, I'm going back to animals again. I'm sorry, but the like there's a mating season for animals, and I'm assuming that there's like a particular blooming or flowering season for other plants as well, and is it i'm assuming that's what you mean by seasonality that if the fire occurs at the flowering season versus at a different time in the plant's life cycle is that's what you mean by seasonality or do you literally mean like human summer spring winter fall yeah i think that's a whole other can of worms how we define seasons but generally we just mean yeah like autumn uh summer uh winter spring okay. and when is that fire occurring so Generally speaking, we do hazard reduction burns in the colder months because it's easier to to control a fire at that time. But fires naturally occur during the hotter months when the conditions are more flammable. So it's trying to strike a balance between those two things. Um, But what we're seeing with climate change is that it's causing the fire season to lengthen uh, as well as making fires hotter and more frequent. So we're seeing a range of effects on the fire regime. But ultimately, it is just changing fire regimes. And that's a problem when our species are adapted to a fire regime rather than fire itself. Right. Um, And I want to maybe ask a question about the other side of fires, because we are just coming out of three years of La Nina, where we had like floods. And I wanted to ask, like, does it affect the dormant seeds or like, could it affect even the fire or the response of the ecosystem to the fire when it will come, I guess? Yeah, like the fire that we're kind of I guess, yeah, expecting. Yeah, the, the next. Yeah, yeah, the next fire. Yeah, it's really hard to say. Like so many factors influence fires. Um, another one is fuel load that I didn't talk about. Um, and that's just how much, I guess, dead plants you've got on the ground, like how much can actually light up during a fire. Mm-hmm. Um and we've had tons of rain, so heaps of plant growth. But then as we go into drier, hotter, more drought-like conditions, that can become a problem as, plant di- as plants die. But, yeah, it's, it's hard to say because when I – I guess when I come from this question, I'm coming at it from a purely research uh, point of view. But fire ecology is a really uh, heated field. That, was, <laughs> that pun was not intended, no. but it is very heated. <laughs> Um, because it's not just researchers who look at it. Obviously, fire has a very real, tangible impact on our lives. So it's also a social uh, issue, but then it's also a political one because I guess climate change comes into it as well, and that's been politicised, especially in Australia. But then also it's a cultural one. So we have cultural burning as well, and after the Black Summer bushfires, that's come up a lot as well. And then we've also got our RFS who work tirelessly to maintain and control these fires so it's hard to say but I think the general consensus when we talk about like the next big fire season is that like all these different groups like we've got to work together because my point of view isn't the only one and it's not the only one that's going to be beneficial because at the end of the day I may be a fire ecologist but I'm not going outside and like 
lighting actual fires. If a fire front came at me, I'd be relying completely on the RFS, you know? Mm. So like, it's about these different groups communicating and working together. Yeah, that's definitely really important. And thank you to all of you RFS members that may be listening. Um, you're very much appreciated by all of us here at Boiling Point, and I'm sure all of our listeners as well. Um, to go back to um, a little bit more about plants reacting to fires, we talk about climate change in terms of affecting, you said, the frequency, the uh, severity, um, and the temperature of the fire. Um, coming from America, we have recently had a very interesting time, um, specifically those that are near uh, to Canada that was having a lot of wildfires recently, which in my lifetime is, is very unheard of. Um, is this issue as well, I'm assuming climate change is also affecting where these fires are occurring as well. Is there then now a danger of exposing fire to organisms that are not adapted to fire whatsoever? Or do all plants have some sort of mechanism to prevent or like complete loss of this plant from fire? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And it's a really important one because that's exactly what we're seeing as these fires change. We're seeing them spread into regions that we wouldn't consider fire prone. And what that means is we wouldn't consider them to experience regular fires and yeah, not really have those sorts of adaptations. So something like a rainforest, which is essentially the opposite of what something you would think to be, you know, fire tolerant. We're seeing fires now come into these sorts of areas. And that's a really big worry uh, because they might be able to bounce back to some degree, but it's generally not within their capacity to be bouncing back to that sort of stuff. Right. Okay. And so then with this sort of present, you know, growing threat, is there anything that we can be doing to sort of, you know, mitigate this? Obviously, I, d I don't think anyone's going to, you know, run out there and as an average citizen with their little fire extinguisher to do anything about it. But like, it, from a from a public perspective, is there anything that people should be aware of or, um, you know, try to change for themselves in order to do something more, more helpful for reducing plants and fires? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I think it's, it's hard because not really, to be honest. Um, that, that's I also think, a very fair yeah, answer. Yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of it, yeah, like I was saying before, comes down to all these different, uh, I guess, fire practitioners, fire managers, fire ecologists, all these fire people um, kind of working together to come to some sort of solution. Um, but I think as well, it's, it's very hard because obviously fires have been really... Uh, brutal in Australia recently because of how climate change has affected fire regimes. So there's a lot of fear surrounding fires. So when we do hazard reduction burns and things like that, there can be a lot of fear that it's going to get out of control. So it's kind of balancing that very real grief and trauma with actually burning the landscape because Australia at the end of the day, I don't have a, you know, a solution to a very complex problem, but it does need to be burned. So, Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess sort of as we're wrapping up here, is there anything that like advice that you would want to give to younger you, like people wanting to get into ecology or specifically fire ecology? I think my advice I'd give to my younger self is that it's not weird to like plants. Um, plants are really cool. They do some pretty spectacular things. And I think as well, just being open to how, I guess, diverse 
uh, certain things can be. Like when I used to think about fire, it was big and scary and still is. But it also has another side of an ecosystem actually needing it. And we can see some really beautiful things from fire. So I guess the advice is you can like plants, follow your passions is probably a nice way to put it. And also things are more complex or nuanced than they seem. Yeah. As a fellow plant scientist, I encourage everyone to study plants. They are so cool. Very cool. Yeah. All right. You've heard it here. Like plants and stay interested in fire and things. Well, you've been joined by Sarah McInnes. Thank you so much for speaking today on Boiling Point. Um, this is Sammy and Ina. Hi. Bye. <laughs> and uh, thank you guys for listening to Boiling Point.